Warning, this issue of Neil Desperandum is rated R for adult content, adult situations, and occasional strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Neil Desperandum 4, An Occidental Book of the Dead, by J. Michael Schell. This is part one of what will be a three-part story. Southern writer J. Michael Schell is a serious and dedicated artist. At the University of South Carolina, where he received a B.A. in English, he studied under the great American poet and novelist James Dickey. Internationally published, Schell's fiction has appeared in publications such as Tropic, the Sunday magazine of the Miami Herald, Space and Time magazine, Hadley Ryle Books' Footprints Anthology, Spectrum Fantastic Arts' Poluto Magazine, and the Shirley Jackson Award-nominated Bound for Evil Anthology from Dead Letter Press, to name just a few. Join us online at www.ndstories.com to comment on this or any of our other stories, or send email to feedback at ndstories.com. An Occidental Book of the Dead by J. Michael Schell Part 1. Avoiding Annie Malcolm Stark kept an appointment with his soul to meet in a dream, and died in his sleep. As they walked, arms around shoulders, through that twilit place, his soul let something silver fall from its hand, and left it lying in the too green grass. The relief Malcolm felt was that of a husband watching his in-laws leave after an extended visit. His soul had never gotten along with his life, but in the end the animosity had become a palpable thing. Even so, the two had remained close, and Malcolm had tried to take his soul's advice whenever he could divine what that cryptic character was trying to tell him. So I guess that's that. Malcolm said as a luminescent fog came rolling into his last dream. More like that's this, his soul said, giving his shoulder a squeeze. I meant, I guess there's no going back, huh? Mal continued, with just a hint of concern in his voice. Oh, there's going back all right, his soul said, halting their stroll and turning Malcolm by the shoulders to face him. That's the easiest way but it leads to nowhere except the hard way. What you want to do is keep going. Onward through the fog. Hey, I remember that. That's what we used to say when we were kids. Hippie kids. We used to get some really trippy fog back then, too. Used to blow our minds. I know. That would have been a good time to meet me here, but you've waited a long time. You hung on to that life like a dog with a bone, didn't you? His soul laughed. Most people would say I was still young, Malcolm pointed out. And anyway, what would you have had me do? Kill myself? God forbid, his soul replied with a little shudder. We'd have been a long time apart if you'd done that. But hey, this isn't the place to be bringing up the past. You're here, now, and that's all that matters. Where exactly is here? Malcolm asked looking around as that ever-so-slightly glowing fog settled in like a wall. 
We're barely across the border of there and just this side of beyond. What are you, Peter Pan? Malcolm laughed. First star to the right and straight on till morning. For some reason, this struck Malcolm and his soul as extremely funny. The two of them laughed so hard that they ended up falling into the dewy grass just below the steadily thickening fog. When, finally, the laughing spell ended, Malcolm sat up in the grass and looked around. All he could see was the white of that fog. He held his hand in front of his face till he felt it touch his nose, but still, he couldn't see it. Where are you? he called out to his soul. It's a real pea super in here. Malcolm could hear his soul chuckling somewhere nearby. Pea super, it repeated, chuckling again. I'm in the fog, Malcolm. Where are you? Well, I'm in the fog too, Mal replied, his desire to laugh stifled by a growing concern. How do we get out of here? Only two ways, his soul said, its voice beginning to grow distant. Onward and through, or back the way you came. If you go back, though, you're just going to end up in here again, after another tussle with that bone. Where are you going? Malcolm asked, as his soul's voice was growing more faint. Where is there to go? His soul replied. Just keep moving, straight ahead, and I'll meet you on the other side. No detours now, and stay out of the past as much as possible. If you have to go in there, take what you need and get back out. What? Malcolm called out. I can barely hear you. Oh yes, that distant voice continued. At some point you're going to meet a girl. Whatever you do, don't... Don't what? Malcolm yelled. But the voice of his soul had become silent as the fog. Well, that's just great, he said, getting to his feet. Just keep going straight? How can I tell straight in this kind of visibility? Malcolm stood like a statue, created and cased in the foam of that fog. Moving seemed senseless to him. He couldn't even see his feet. Then it occurred to him that this was a dream. Or at least it had been when he'd arrived. I've floated in dreams before, he thought. Why not now? My soul said keep going straight. Maybe he meant straight up. If nothing else, maybe I can float up over this fog and see where I am. Malcolm was surprised, but not that surprised, when his bare feet lifted from the cool grass beneath them. Immediately the sensation of floating coursed through him like euphoria. Tilting his head back, he could see something brightening above him. A feeling of tremendous release overwhelmed him, and he thought, This is it. I'm almost out. I'm going to make it. Just as he was gaining some straight upward speed, Malcolm heard a voice that seemed to tug on him until he stopped rising. Are you sure you want to go that way? It said. At first it sounded like his soul, but not quite. Something about its tone was different. Malcolm stayed suspended in that fog for a long moment, unsure now whether to keep floating out or go back and see who was talking to him. Then the voice spoke again. Come on back down. The fog is lifting. Captured in midair by his uncertainty, Malcolm finally started to fall back into his dream. As he did, the incredible peace he'd felt when he was rising was violently shorn away. Anxiety replaced it as his feet touched down into blades of grass that seemed to have grown sharp. The fog was lifting, 
but even that didn't ease his growing sense of urgency. Then he saw the owner of that voice he'd heard. You know, he said, you're the spitting image of my soul, except you're so white. White? the image asked, turning to face him. When it did, Malcolm saw that it was actually quite black. Then it moved again, and with every movement changed from black to white to black, and then white. Do you think you could stop that? Malcolm asked. You're making me dizzy. Sure, just take your pick. What'll it be? How about gray? Mal suggested. The soul-looking character laughed and said, But that's something else entirely, isn't it? Let's try white, just for starters. When his soul's imposter had fixed its coloring at the starkest white, Malcolm said, I'm trying to get out of here. I don't suppose you know the way. My soul said to keep going straight, but I'm really not sure which way to begin. You were going straight, Whitey told him. What made you come back down? You did, Malcolm replied, becoming just a little bit annoyed. I can't make you do anything. I'm just a suggestion. But I think you should go back the way you came, save yourself a lot of trouble. You missed your chance to go straight. Forget it, Malcolm insisted. I'm not going back there. I'll trust my soul if it's all the same to you. Whatever you say. I couldn't possibly care any less, the white one answered. Come on, it continued, motioning with its pale hand. Come on where, Malcolm asked. Here, it said, pointing. What it pointed to was a hazy picture starting to focus itself out of the remaining wisps of fog. It was a picture of Malcolm when he was young. He was standing in a classroom filled with children. They were poor, black children, and he recognized them immediately. He taught them three days a week back when he was in college. It was his after-school remedial reading class, and Malcolm suddenly felt the love he'd had for those kids way back when. Remember that little girl? Whitey asked him, pointing again with his frail, blank finger. Of course. That's Lillianne. She was introverted. And you saved her, his whiteness interrupted. Suddenly, Malcolm was back in that picture, standing before his class. Lillianne was sitting in the back, her body language folding in on itself the way it always did. Malcolm smiled. It was the day he'd had that idea, the day he'd figured her out and knew exactly what to do. Lillianne didn't need remedial reading. She was smart as a whip, and Malcolm knew it. It amazed him that her regular teachers hadn't seen it, didn't know that this cute little fourth-grade girl's introversion was refusing to allow her to work, refusing to allow her to demonstrate what she was learning in spite of it. But Malcolm knew, and he also knew that her introversion was absolutely no match for this extrovert. Come up here and sit in front, Lillianne, he'd said to her. You're just as pretty as a daisy, and I want to be able to see you. Some of the other kids giggled, but there was actually very little condescension. These were poor kids, a lot of them abused, who instinctively knew not to denigrate any form of kindness that might momentarily intrude itself on the ugliness of any of their lives. Malcolm knew that after-school remedial reading class was a bad idea from the start. These kids couldn't handle their long days of regular school, much less another hour and a half three times a week. This basically left him two options. Fight for control of the class for 90 minutes and get nothing done, 
or make a deal, and keep it secret from his supervisor at the Urban League. Here's the deal, he'd said to the kids. Y'all let me teach you for 15 minutes. You pay attention, and you really try. When 15 minutes are up, we'll go out in the yard for the rest of the class and play kickball. For some reason, those kids just loved playing kickball. Believe it or not, it worked. Malcolm was taking some education classes at the university and had access to all sorts of learning materials. And when the kids found out that any cutting up stopped the clock on their 15-minute countdown, he started getting those minutes uninterrupted. He was getting a solid 45 minutes a week of quality learning in, and better than three and a half hours of the best kickball games he'd ever refereed, which fit perfectly into his plan for Lillianne. Malcolm called on Lillian constantly while he was teaching. He knew she always knew the answers, and watched as she struggled to make herself speak. At first, she barely whispered, her eyes locked downward, looking at her desk. But every time she managed to answer in her tiny, scared squeak of a voice, Malcolm would feign, with great drama, an incredible love for the sound of it. Your voice is like little frozen roses melting over me, Oh, my lovely Lillianne, if only you would sing in my dreams. On and on he would go like that, and then flirt with her till her dark skin blushed. Secretly, he'd tell her she was ever so different from the other kids, smarter and prettier, and oh, how she'd stolen his heart. Then on the kickball field, he always made her captain, made her choose her team, and told her she had to inspire them, tell them nice hit and nice catch when they made them and move your flabby butt when they didn't. That was pretty much all there was to it. Like a daffodil shooting out of its bulb, Lillianne came out of herself, and nothing less than absolute love filled her eyes whenever she'd looked at Malcolm. She was smarter than even he knew, and was quite aware of what he'd done for her. Pretty soon, Lily stopped coming to Malcolm's after-school remedial reading class. When he asked the other kids about her, they said, Lillianne gets all straight A's now, and Lily don't need to come here no more. Poor Mr. Malcolm, one little girl said, done lost the love of his life. Malcolm's supervisor at the Urban League got a plaque from the mayor for turning Lily into a straight-A student. Mal smiled when he heard about that, and told himself that he couldn't care less, which had pretty much been the truth. Years later, while riding a city bus... On a day when he was feeling particularly low, Lillianne, grown into a fine young lady, sat next to him and said, Hello, Malcolm. He recognized her immediately, but momentarily forgot her name. Annie? he asked. Lillianne, she'd corrected. Yes, he stammered. Yes, I know that. What have you got there? he asked, indicating the stack of papers on her lap. These are the colleges I've been accepted to. I'm trying to pick one. Do you have any advice? Yes, he answered. Don't take advice from tired old men. You're not old, she scolded. Just today, Lillianne. I just feel old today. But your voice is still like melting flowers, and I feel better now. I really do. This is my stop. I have to go, she said. But before she got up, she kissed him on the cheek and whispered in his ear, I'll always love you. Now move your flabby butt.
That sure beat a plaque from the mayor, Malcolm told his pale companion as he once again stood in his dream. Yes, very touching, Whitey said. But when Malcolm turned, that soul imposter was black as a hole in midnight. Do you remember why you were feeling so down and guilty that day you saw Lillianne on the bus? Not guilty, Malcolm insisted. I wasn't feeling guilty at all. Then in the distance, those wisps of fog started taking on shapes again, until Malcolm could see his ex-wife, young and crying. Then he noticed other girls from college, ones he'd been seeing while he was still married. A great host of unpleasantness threatened to envelop him in that scene. But Malcolm resisted. No, he said, looking away. You can stop that right now. I see your game, my piebald imposter, and I'm not having any more of it. I didn't save Lillianne. I just did my job. I just recognized what needed to be done, and I did it, because I was human and Lily was human. I was compelled by that humanity to do what I did. As for my wife, she was a spoiled brat, and I have no regrets. If you think I'm going to stand here and watch you flip-flop between black and white, insinuating that this deed of mine was good and that deed of mine was bad, well, I'm about to ruin your day. No regrets, my pompous, judgmental friend. It was what it was. It came and it went. So if your plan is to confuse me into wanting to go back and get things right, think again. I'm quite aware that I wasn't perfect, but I took it as it came and let it go when it left. I will not regret. Now leave me alone. Fine. I'll be on my way then. And I'll leave you alone just as you've asked. Let's see what kind of regrets you don't have. Malcolm was about to espouse dirty words when he noticed the black and white fellow had vanished. He sighed and closed his eyes, but when he reopened them, he was back in his house that night before he died. He was seeing himself sitting on his couch with tears streaming from his eyes. He'd been watching an old movie called The Shootist, and it had made him cry. Suddenly, Malcolm understood why the black-and-white imposter had sent him here. As he'd sat and watched the old dying gunfighter in the movie fall in love when it was much too late, Malcolm realized that he'd never known that kind of love in his life, and that it was also much too late for him. The loneliness that had hardened into callous was starting to have its way with his mind. He could see it in his living eyes as he sat there crying, not moving, not making a sound as if his tears were part of the movie. As he watched that self sitting there on the couch, Malcolm could feel the confusion that had been in his mind. It amazed him how much clearer he'd become as soon as he'd shed that life. Maybe I should have died sooner, he said out loud. Suddenly his still-living self looked at him, saw him standing there, and fixed his eyes with his own. So, what is it you regret? Live, Malcolm asked. Having lived so long, or having lived so long alone? Then he noticed the face of his living self grow dark, until it was the pale black face of that imposter. Malcolm smiled. This persistent bedeviler was not going to have its way with him. As hard as it is to remember my mind that night, I know why I cried. It wasn't because of any sort of regret. I cried because I was lonely. And loneliness, you two-bit accuser, is not a sin. Sin? Who said anything about sin? The accuser said nervously, 
his eyes beginning to dart around. It's what you've been implying, isn't it? With your questions about guilt and those living portraits of my lovers you painted for me? You won't be happy till I'm a bawling wreck, begging everybody I've interacted with for forgiveness, will you? I couldn't possibly care less. Oh, yes, you could. You want my guilt to keep me here. Bring me back to go through all of this again, don't you? I'm just an impartial observer. You're no such thing. You're the lowest form of conniver, luring us in with praise for our noble deeds so you can hurt us worse with our mistakes and the dubious choices we've made. You might as well just scream the word sin while you point with your filthy finger. You hurt us, and that is your sin. You enjoy our pain while pretending to be the righteous judge of our lives. I never. That's right, and you never will. Not with me. So go back to whatever hell you crawled out of. I refuse to acknowledge you anymore. As Malcolm stared at him, grim and determined, the imposter began to fade away. But even as he did, a smile spread across his face. You may have made it past me, Malcolm, but I'm just the beginning. You won't make it through, and I'll see you again. Maybe another life will make you more... pliable, shall we say. The loneliness you died of can kill you again, even here. You'll never get past her. Then the tormentor disappeared, and Malcolm was back on the plains of his dream, watching the last little tassels of fog dissipate and float away. The grass really is greener on the other side. Malcolm wondered how he hadn't noticed it before. Nothing had ever been so green, and the smell of it, and the cool, dewy feel. It was as if obscuring flesh had been removed from his senses. What body is this, then, that I'm wearing? He thought, sitting and running his hand through the grass. Eventually, he laid back into that sweet-smelling green and rested. It wasn't the body he wore that needed resting, but his mind. What had seemed an easy victory over his black-and-white tormentor was not. It had taken all of Malcolm's resolve, once he'd figured out that bastard's intent, to resist. Even through his determination, seeds of doubt had been sown. Seeds that could grow in him if he didn't fight. But for now he would rest, then attempt once more to move straight towards that rendezvous with his soul. It seemed he'd only closed his eyes for minutes. It might have been less, and it might have been years, but when Malcolm opened them again, he could not move. Immediately, he saw the problem. While he'd been resting, wildflowers, with magnificent blooms and sturdy stalks, had grown up all around and through him. Even the grass had skewered him, like little emerald pikes. There was no pain, but he could not move. Apparently, there was literally no rest for the weary in this place. Malcolm might have called out. In fact, he might have screamed, had a black-eyed Susan not grown through his throat and bloomed right over his face. Every attempt he made to cry out simply vibrated that lovely flower, shaking loose pollen that dusted his face and made him want to sneeze. While Malcolm knew the perils of panic, it was rapidly moving up the list of his possible courses of action. Then he heard a sound that stayed his hysteria. What he heard was humming, and thankfully, 
not the humming of bees. Malcolm focused his attention on this mellifluous sound. It gave him an idea, and when he tried it, he realized that he could hum too, though it showered him with pollen that settled in his eyes. When Malcolm started to hum, the other humming stopped. Then he heard a voice say, What sound is that? I've never heard an echo here before. Mal was about to start humming again, as loud as he could, when he noticed someone standing over him. Though his vision was blurry with pollen and obscured by the flowers that were growing through him, it appeared to be a girl with a basket on her arm. What a lovely stand of flowers, she exclaimed, obviously unable to see Malcolm lying beneath them. Such a pattern they trace, like a boy lying there in the grass. I will pick him and take him home with me. As if she could hear Malcolm begging her to pick that black-eyed Susan first, she did. Oh, thank you, he said, clearing his throat. It's so very nice to meet you. In a voice that was truly as sweet as Malcolm had pretended Lillianne's to be, he heard her say, with just a hint of a lisp, Oh, my, these flowers speak to me. I'm under the flowers, Malcolm implored. Please pick them so I can get up. Are you a boy under there? That painfully beautiful voice asked him. I once was a boy, but I senselessly grew old, I'm afraid. Please let me out. I promise I'd never hurt you. Laughter that sounded like tiny bells trinkled over him, and he heard her say, It is old that flowers thrive on, and these have grown quite stout. I'll pick you and see for myself what you are. And no, she laughed again, you will not hurt me. Thank you, Malcolm said. Please hurry, I need to scratch my nose. I will pick you in my own dear time, she said, showering him again with her misty laughter. This is not a thing to be rushed. Now, where shall I pick you first? Well, Malcolm began, but she hushed him. You be still and lie there quiet. If you want my help, you'll have it my way or none. Okay, I just shush. Malcolm shushed. This girl was the only way out of his dilemma. He did not want to tick her off. The girl with the basket began to speak again, almost sing, as she lazily walked around Malcolm. Lilies of the valley have grown from your forehead like little cups upturned. A buttercup has bloomed beneath your chin. A magnificent thistle has grown from your heart of a royal lavender hue. Will it prick me with thorns when I pick you there? Look at your belly, she giggled and squealed, all effervescent with periwinkle, pink and white. And there below, she whispered and sighed, Narcissus has grown and tempts me to pick it first. But I'll not, she said in a petulant tone. First I'll know your mind. But don't worry. I'm not a bashful girl, and will pluck you everywhere I please. When she pulled those flowers from Malcolm's forehead, he felt something else leaving his mind with them. He wasn't sure what it was, but suddenly he thought of the puppy he'd had when he was ten years old. I must save this buttercup, 
the girl said as she picked it next, to tell when you're lying once I've set you free. Suddenly Malcolm could feel her fondling the thistle that grew from his heart. The vibrations ached like longing, but she did not pick him there yet. Instead, she ran her hand through the periwinkle, nipping those little blossoms one by one. This stirred an incredible fire in Malcolm's loins, as if it was the very first time such sensation moved in him. What a strong flower Narcissus is, she continued, kneeling down and caressing that frilly bloom to her cheek. As she pulled it out of its place, the first spring of ecstasy bubbled up into Malcolm's senses. A moan escaped his lips. And now I'll have your heart. When she'd tugged the thistle out of his chest, the flower girl yelped and spoke with what sounded to be genuine surprise. Your heart dost prick me with thorn. I bleed. Malcolm stood up and took her hand in his, pulled the little thistle thorn out of her finger. Then he kissed it and said to her, Thank you. You saved me. Oh, I thank you to freed yourself soon. Flowers here grow tired and die young, unless you pick them, of course. So yes, I did save you, and will keep you here in my basket. Even your naughty heart that pricks me so. Malcolm was about to tell her how beautiful she was. So amazingly beautiful. This girl child just come upon the throes of womanhood. Her hair was the palest color of straw, woven through with threads of strawberry that caught and threw the light like sparks. Her lips were the translucent pink of pomegranate seeds, and her skin like porcelain glaze. Malcolm was about to tell her all of this, and more with abandon, when he noticed her eyes. So pale you could barely call them blue. Their cold color, like glacial ice, was impenetrable, and unyielding, and old. Those eyes made Malcolm look away, and when he did he noticed himself. The shock of it dropped him onto his butt in the grass from which he'd been extricated. The flower girl laughed, and the wonderful sound of it impaled him. Then he looked down at himself and exclaimed, I'm a boy! To which that lovely laughter responded again. I mean, I'm young! Malcolm corrected, hopping to his feet. I mean, I'm a child! I may even be younger than you! Oh, by far! the flower girl said, mock seriously, except for her eyes, which were serious as stones. I told you those flowers thrive on old. Had I shown up much later, I'd have found a babe in the grass. How lovely that would have been. I'd have played with you forever. And who knows? I may still, she added, hooding her eyes and offering a suggestive smile. Malcolm felt the thrill of youth run through him as she smiled. Bowing comically at the waist, he said to her, Malcolm Stark, at your service. The temptress smile on the flower girl grew to a dangerous grin as she said, I am Amity, but you can call me Annie. Malcolm rejoiced in his youth, and Amity watched him. He leapt and cavorted in the grass, turning somersaults and cartwheels, whooping all the while. Then when he'd hopped, skipped, and jumped quite a distance from her, he fell into a heap and began to cry. As if that was her cue, Amini went to him. He was sitting on his feet with his face in his hands, weeping like the child he'd become. Amini knelt beside him and took him into her arms. Why are you crying, Malcolm? she asked, holding his face in her hands. His eyes were full of tears, 
and Amini kissed them, then tasted her lips. Mmm, your sorrow is truly sweet. Running the tip of her delicate tongue up his cheeks, she licked away the last of his tears. I don't know what I'm doing, Malcolm finally said, touching his cheek where she'd licked it dry. I'm supposed to find my soul. I was supposed to keep going straight. But so much has happened. Now I'm a child, and I don't know what to do. He looked at her beautiful face. A pleading expression hung from his own. I'm supposed to stay out of the past, but look at me. This isn't the past, Malcolm. You've simply grown young again. You aren't the boy you were. You're the boy you are. Don't you see? Yes, I think I understand. The burden of the years I've lived is gone, but I still remember them. Does that make any sense to you, Amini? Call me Annie, she said, smiling and hugging him tight against her. Then she let him go and sprung to her feet. I was going home when I found you. I live deep in that forest there, she said, pointing with her perfect doll's hand. There isn't any forest, Malcolm replied. Just all this grass as far as you can see. But when he stood up next to her, a forest, hoary and ancient, was before them. Where did that come from? he asked, in a voice full of so much childlike wonder that Amini smiled and her eyes grew wide. This is the front yard of my home, and I live in a dollhouse castle. All manner of creatures, furred and flying, come to my house to gossip about the trees. Do you live there alone? I mean, no other people? Malcolm asked. Well, I'll have you if you'll walk me home. My flowers need a vase and water. You wouldn't want your heart to wilt, now would you? She asked, stroking the lavender down of the thistle that was in her basket, that was once again on her arm. I don't know, Malcolm hesitated. I'm supposed to keep going straight. Well, that's perfect then, Amini laughed. We'll be going straight to my demean. When she took his hand in hers, the softness and warmth of her fingers reminded him of how she'd caressed and plucked his flowers. That strange excitement filled him again, and he let her lead him into the forest. The path they followed into those woods was anything but straight. The cooler air inside was sweet with decay and intoxicating. Malcolm felt it like desire swelling in him as Amini's hot little hand pulled him further along the winding way. So tight were the circles this path meandered that Malcolm began to grow dizzy and fay. Finally, he let go of Amini's hand and leaned against a willow tree. I can't go on. I have to rest, he said, sliding down and sitting against the base of that tree. Amini was standing, hands on hips, looking down at him sitting there. When she spoke, her voice sounded somehow hard, as if those little bells had been removed. If you stay there, trees will go through you, and those I cannot remove. But no matter, we are here. See, my castle stands in that clearing. Now get up before I grow tired of you. Malcolm rose, and the sweetness returned to Amini's voice. A kiss I require, as payment for guiding you through this obscuring forest she said. Come here. 
you'll find me more yielding than the hard flesh of trees. As she took him into her arms, Malcolm could feel his weariness dissipate, removed and replaced with desire that made him sigh. And when Amity lightly touched her lips to his and pushed her breath onto his tongue, a tempest of longing shook him violently. Harder and harder he pressed his lips to hers until both their mouths were crushed and bled. Desperately he drew on her breath. Had he been able to open wide enough, he'd have swallowed her. Finally, Amine pushed him back and held him at arm's length. Her lips were bright with their mingled blood, and her cold, wide eyes seemed to pulse with light. I may remember you when all this is done, and anticipate your return. Most of my lovers are mere kindling fires, but you, I think, could ignite the world. Come now, straight to my bed. Afterward you can rest, and sleep the deepest sleep of all. Malcolm saw with dizzy eyes that Amony was nude. Her body was so new and perfect that he let out an awful moan. As she tugged at his clothes and pulled him toward her, she spoke in a voice so ancient it made the old forest seem like a stand of saplings. I will take you, all of you, deep inside me, curled tight with sleep in the arms of oblivion. The beat of my heart, the rush of my blood will warm and soothe you there. And when once more you fill your lungs with air, I'll be waiting at the end of that journey to make this love to you again. Malcolm was lost in the molten ooze his body was becoming. Like lava, he was flowing toward her lake, where he'd fall into the extinguishing depths of her womb. His vision had gone monochromatic, as if a film of blood was over his eyes. Amony's body glistened with pearls of moisture that seemed pink to Malcolm's tinted sight. Then, as if he only had one more thought to think, and must choose it carefully, Malcolm heard his soul say, You'll meet a girl. Whatever you do, don't, he finished out loud. Hush, Amony growled. No more words until you learn new ones. She'd had him by the forearms, easing him toward her when Malcolm pulled away. He fell back and was once again sitting against the willow tree. Amony's face was filled with astonishment. Then she squinted her eyes and said in a ferocious voice, Come to me now, it is time. Malcolm thought he hadn't heard the entire last thing his soul had called to him. But he had. You'll meet a girl. Whatever you do, don't. Though desire was cooling in him, the vision of Amine tugged with its beauty. Never before had he wanted anything as badly as he wanted to enter her now, curl up inside her, stripped of all he was and naked as birth. But somehow he managed to speak again. I have an appointment you'd keep me from. My soul is waiting. And still it will wait for lifetimes to come. Amony hissed. Look at me, Malcolm. You cannot refuse. Malcolm thought of his soul, felt the love of a twin for its sibling. When he stood, he was no longer a child, nor was he very old. In fact, he thought he was just about the same age as his soul. Vaguely, Malcolm would hear her screams as he stepped out onto that grassy plain. He walked straight ahead, toward where his soul would be waiting.
Little Desperandum is a production of the Bear Crawling Nation. Edited and published by Jim Phillips. Engineered and produced by Charles McFall. And is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. <laughs>